Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast for July 2016. This month, domestication before and after. We take a look at how wild boar are wreaking havoc across the world and the origins of starch digestion in the domestic dog. If I think of wild boar, I picture stories from times gone by, medieval banquets and thrilling hunts on horseback with bows and arrows. But these days, wild boar have become less of an aristocratic foodstuff and more of a conservation quandary. Big, hairy and omnivorous, the ancestor of today's modern pigs, have spread to every continent except Antarctica. When they arrive, wild boar are putting pressure on native fauna and flora. Birds, small mammals and plants are all in the firing line of this highly successful invasive species. Even within their native Europe, they're fast becoming a pest, both to wildlife and humans. Eduardo Ferreira from the University of Aveiro in Portugal was part of a team which decided to delve into the genetic history of the wild boar population, looking for clues to their success and maybe picking up a few tips and tricks on how to better manage them in the future. Here's Eduardo. Our key aims were actually to uh, assess population structure, diversity and uh, the other genetic uh, parameters in wild boar populations in, in, wild, uh, in Europe and to understand the, uh, the effect of uh, human-mediated uh, events and from historical events in the wild boar uh, genetics, the compositions of wild boar genetics and to detect the, uh, if there was signal of uh, past demographic events and uh, gene flow and uh, migrations of wild war in uh, populations across Europe. And so tell me, what kind of demographic events could you be looking for in the past? We were uh, mostly looking for bottlenecks and uh, uh, population expansions, population bottlenecks and population expansions on wild war. Tell me, how did you go about that? Where were you looking? Where, where were you, you know, what, what, what populations were you looking at? Okay, we were uh, searching these evidences on uh, populations from the three southern European peninsulas, namely Iberia, Balkans and Italy, but also from central and eastern Europe. And what did you find? What were your results after all of these, um, all of these investigations? Uh, we found evidence of uh, bottlenecks uh, that was mostly biased to southern uh, refuge populations associated with the southern peninsulas. Um, we found also evidence of population expansions, uh, but not confined only to those uh, refuge populations, but also to more uh, less peripheral populations and more uh, more close to central europe uh, larger populations and mixed populations so in a sense we found out that uh, even if the migration flow was more limited from those refuge populations toward towards the center uh, pop, central populations 
the these southern refuge populations are actually net contributors to the gene pool of wild boar in Central and uh, Eastern Europe. So in a sense, we could say that uh, these results highlight the 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 role that these refuge populations have as a source of genetic diversity to the gene pool of wild boar in Europe. And so tell me, what does this mean for conservation efforts or for management efforts going forward? What we concluded from our findings is that we should... Uh, should pay some more attention to some issues uh, like, for example, uh, cross-border management because several of the populations that we identified in Europe were actually distributed uh, across national borders. So actually most populations in Europe are not confined to uh, territories within national borders. And so if we have a sort of management in one country and another management in another country, and this management is not uh, integrated, uh, we, are, uh, we have more chances of failing. We also found out that we have some more potential refuge populations that we actually were aware of before of this study. So these populations should also be managed accordingly to this uh, status of uh, refuge populations or potentially source populations. Why is it that these wild boar are becoming so out of control in their populations? Uh, there is a, a recent collaborative study in, um, in Europe uh, addressing this question of uh, why is wild boar increasing in numbers throughout all Europe. And one of the, one of the major reasons that is uh, appointed in this study is that it, this is probably related with the decrease in the number of hunters across all Europe. And so does that mean that part of management of them in the future might include things like increasing the number of hunters? This is a very controversial uh, subject, but probably we should, uh, at least this is uh, uh, something that must be considered uh, while spe when speaking about uh, wild boar conservation, is that probably uh, we should, uh, be, uh, should uh, be aware of the role of uh, the human species as uh, a predator of wild boar uh, in Europe. That was Eduardo Ferreira from the University of Aveiro. Oh, dogs. Man and woman's best friend. They've been by our sides for tens of thousands of years, but the process and the timeline of domestication is still not fully understood. From their wolfy ancestors through to the plethora of pooches we see today, the transition has been significant, and it's not just on the outside. Domestic dogs have much more varied diets than their wolfy ancestors, who are all about the meat. In one recent study, researchers turned to dogs' diet, in particular starch, to see what they could learn about both the timing and the drivers of dog domestication. I called Maya Ernt from Uppsala University in Sweden to find out more. Here's Maya. What we um, know from um, the dog population that we have today and also from our research is that um, dogs seem to have a higher tolerance of eating starch. So um, most dog foods are um, based on a high starch content um, well, this is probably different from if you look at cats, which tend to eat more of a carnivorous diet. When did this sort of change to use eating starch in their diet happen? 
Well, so I guess we're not 100% sure exactly how, and that's why we've done some of our researches to figure out when this event really occurred. Um, so one of our theories, based on the previous research we did where we were comparing sort of sequencing data from uh, wolves compared to dogs, um, was that we saw um, changes in genes that were associated with digestion of starch, and that led us to be, believe that perhaps... Um, the ability to digest starch was an important component in the dog domestication. Um, however, I guess what we've seen afterwards is that actually it's not all dogs that carry um, multiple copies of the amylase gene, which is important for digesting starch. Um, and therefore, um, it could be that this is a more recent event that's maybe co-occurring at the same uh, events that have uh, related to humans uh, being able to digest uh, starch. How did you go about trying to work out when this ability to digest starch started to happen in the timeline of wolves to dog, as it were? When we look at the number of, of um, amylase copy numbers in the dog population. Is, is it a direct relationship between the number of copies of this gene and the ability of a dog to digest starch? Um, not a direct relationship and I think no one's really done a functional study to see how it affects starch digestion. The only thing we've previously done is to look at the levels of amylase in the blood of dogs and we can see there's a correlation between your level of, of serum amylase and the number of uh, copy numbers of the amylase gene that you have. So you're sort of using it as a proxy for the ability to digest starch? Yeah. So how did you go about doing this study? We have gotten samples from multiple sources. Um, some samples I've collected myself. I've gone to dog shows and asked for salivary samples. Um, some samples have been uh, collected by collaborators throughout the world. Okay, so you've collected your samples. You've analysed them for the number of copy numbers of this amylase gene. Tell me, what did you find? The changes in the amylase copy numbers we see in dogs across the world um, they sort of follow the prehistoric uh, development of agriculture. That could suggest that the increase in amylase copy numbers uh, would be a sort of Neolithic event, some, something that happened re rather recently. So I suppose that, that makes some sense, really. You know, if, if it coincided with agriculture, then the kinds of foods which contain a lot of starch, plants, plant matter, in fact, would be more readily available to feed the dogs. And so that reason that they would want to, you know, develop that ability. Yeah, absolutely. And we and we know that, I mean, dogs, if you, you go to um, places where they have wild dogs living close to humans, I mean, they do like to go into our, our garbage and, and um, thrive of whatever left there is there are. And of course, if, if humans were um, eating um, starch-based diets themselves and dogs were going for the leftovers, then um, that would, would mean that they would be able to thrive on that. Your study suggests a correlation, perhaps, with um, agriculture and this ability to digest starch. Does it, it doesn't necessarily put a time scale on. It just notices that different species, there seems to be a bit of a correlation with this ability based on the timing of agricultural development in those places around the world. Yeah, I don't think we really clarify further when the timing of domestication was really on, on our uh, study. Um, that's, I think, still up to debate. The relationship you found is a geographical one from which you can infer an, a, 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 time, a temporal one based on other data we know about the, the agricultural development in those places. Yeah, so we but we assume that it probably happened prior to the agricultural development. At least most of the published data would probably suggest it was something that happened prior. That was Maya Ernt from Uppsala University in Sweden. And that's all for this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Tune in next month for more. Thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 